0: Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present, your, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out, all, put out my hand, and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the, the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I... And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the Lord, the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord." The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in the coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, and he and his servants... So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the eighth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." So Moses and Aaron went into the Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is the left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking, And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the field. And eat every plant in the land. Sorry, yes. All that he has, all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought on east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense sw- swarm of locusts has, had never seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing am- remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, "I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me." So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which left the locust, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single Locust was left on all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, Nor did anyone arise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take, them, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, said to him, Get away from me. Take care, and never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. So, this week, nine years ago, I spent the evening into the late hours of the night with my small group searching for a man named Nicholas Francisco. The day before Valentine's Day, that year, he disappeared without a trace. He left a wife of seven years, two little kids, and a baby on the way behind. He was a man that we went to church with. He was a man that served faithfully week in and week out. And on that day, before heading home, he told his wife that he was going to come back, bake some Valentine's Day cookies with his girls, right after stopping at Costco on the way back from work. He never came home. We felt as we were searching for them, that could have been us, that could have been any one of us. We were in our young, mid-twenties, all had growing young families, and it was terrifying. We feared the worst, and his car ended up abandoned, found in Federal Way. And what the cops discovered, we didn't know at the time, but months later, after he had went missing, that he was the epitome of deceit. They found on his computer hidden bank accounts that he'd had for years, found memberships to hookup sites, swingers sites, evidence that he had had a very promiscuous life while he was married, even. And then his last purchase they found on his credit card before he went missing was a massive amount of condoms. For one and a half years, he was still missing until he was found in LA, alive and well, under the name of Alex Martin, living a very different life. And when the cops found him, and when a friend was able to to locate him down there and asked, do you want to see a picture of your kids? Do you want to see and meet your third child? He said no. When he asked what he had thought about that whole process of letting people worry for a year and a half, he said, I feel guilty about that. And then paused and said, actually, no. No, they did it. They looked for me. They searched for me for selfish reasons. He was a portrait of deceit. And this morning, I want to really... um, Drive this point home for us as a church. This is a heavy section. As, as Chase read, that lengthy section ends with this plague of darkness. And it is a dark place if, in Scripture. If we were to look at all of Scripture, all 66 books, and we were to see them in varying shades of light and encouraging, like psalms to wake you up and give you a smile in the morning, to very dark sections, this would be some of the darkest hue in Scripture. But the two paths that are always available to us, which were available to Him, are humility and deceit. My big idea this morning is humility always leads to obedience to God, but deceit always leads to a dark and hardened heart. Most of you guys are familiar with some of the news this week of school shootings that seem to continue. Um, They seem to, to plague us, and we don't understand where this comes from, there's all sorts of factors, and I'm not going to go into the political um, issues surrounding all those factors, but one thing is very sure, no parent raises their young baby assuming they're going to turn into a school shooter. Most of those kids are living in a very self-deceived way up until they get to that point. So we're going to be spending a lot of time this morning looking up close at Pharaoh. In previous weeks, we've kind of taken a big um, picture of the plagues as a whole and how God sets up these ten plagues as a polemic, uh, a philosophical argument essentially crushing the false gods they believed in, these pantheon of gods, and showing that he was the better, truer, he was the good and only God. But as we zoom in and look more at Pharaoh's heart, as he has hardened his heart, plague after plague, and comes to this place where God begins to say okay and harden Pharaoh's heart. We are going to zoom in and see what makes him tick. What are Pharaoh's driving motives? And most importantly, my prayer is that we'll be able to see reflection of our own (coughs) hearts because we all move towards that place when we step out of humility. So let's pray together and we'll jump in. Father, as you brought great weighty judgment on hard-heartedness, on deceitfulness, Lord, we, we come humbly knowing that we are all but one step away from turning to that same heart of faithfulness, of pride, of deceit and disobedience. And God, let not one of us assume that we only have the heart of Moses or the heart of Jesus, but we often are drawn towards a heart of deception, of hiding in our shame, of not wanting to be seen, but wanting to hide. But God, you are so good. You have shined light in dark places, and you continue to do that through your word. So let us see the light that is shining in our hearts. Let us come humbly before you and confess any deceitfulness or any rebellion that is in the dark recesses in the corners of our hearts. So two weeks ago, Luis began this section on the plagues, looking at the Nile, the plague turning the Nile into blood, looking at God bringing frogs and God bringing gnats on the people. And that plague was definitely enough to get their attention. It was kind of on the moderately annoying side for the people. Um, It still hadn't really hit home. It hadn't really affected them individually in a way that was physical or, or drew blood, so to speak. But Moses still didn't humble himself or obey, but he hardened his heart. Last week, Javon preached to us, and he covered the middle plagues of the flies that were sent, the, the death of the livestock, and the boils. The boils became more personal. They felt that. It hit them. And he explained that it had gone from uncomfortable, moderately annoying, to painful. These intensifying circles where it just gets towards this epicenter of intensity. And Pharaoh still did not humble himself or obey. Six plagues in and he was faced with those two paths over and over humility, I am not God, you are God, or deceit. Nah, I'm not gonna obey. It begins to say in that section that God hardened his heart in conjunction with Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which brings us to where we are now. Plague 7, 8, and 9. If you want to put up the first plague, um. As we move into these, going from this unpainful section of plagues to a painful section of plagues, we see these plagues become crushing for Pharaoh and for the Egyptians that refused humility. And one thing to note, as we talked about that long scripture reading, um, that that is good for us, but one of the reasons I think that that Moses spills so much ink on these last three and why this is such a longer section of scripture than the first six is because he is focusing in and narrowing in on Pharaoh's heart. We see a lot more of a peak inside that man's mind, what comes out of his heart through his words. And so it's a detailed and lengthy portrait of deception. And so I'll take the most time looking at number 7 as say, plagues 8 and 9 a little bit longer. So the plague of hail. The first thing we see in um, verses 13 through 16, God starts in the scripture is saying that for now, Verse 13 through 16. For now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people. God's saying he has started soft. He has started in a place of severe mercy where he was beginning in a calm whisper before his voice intensified. And there's an escalation in this, which is why in verse 17, he says, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And this pride language persists. And then we see it continue in verse 18 through 21. Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen before. And he continues talking about this plague of hail that would come and ends saying, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. We see that already the path of humility or deceit has been laid out by God, the path of humility or obedient, and obedience. And Pharaoh and his people did not pay attention to the word of the Lord. Now, as I said, up to this point, the plagues hadn't drawn blood, but there had been clear and increasing warnings given. I could have started out like this, God says, but I've restrained my hand. There's still patience left, though. God still says, Bring your people and bring your animals inside. This doesn't have to end this way. And it should cause us to think where are we taking God's patience for granted? Where are we assuming His restraint will continue forever? And where has He been convicting us to grow and change and and we have been ignoring His voice? Again, heavy things. God's leading foot with Pharaoh was mercy. And we see this change where the foot becomes increasingly the foot of judgment. And there's a distinction that's been growing, as Javon said last week, between God's people, Israel, and the people of of Egypt. God begins to move in mercy with one and yet judgment in the other, those who scoffed at God and did not obey. As we read through the the list of how the plague turns out, have you guys ever been in and under like a heavy, heavy hail? Um, like last night, I was reading through the section and was thinking about it because the winds were insane in Beering. It like heard things moving outside and everything was flown off of our deck. And I've seen some pretty crazy nights of hail, but not the kind that was going to kill every living thing and plant outside. But that kind of, that kind of hail, that kind of wind storm makes you feel small. It makes you feel. Very fragile. You can't even leave your own house without the elements turning against you. And it should humble us. So how did Pharaoh respond? We see in verses 27, 26, his deceiving heart. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people in the wrong. Pleadeth the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So that sounds like a win. Confession, repentance, I've sinned, you're right, God, I'm wrong. We heard the whole story though. We aren't fooled, it was just words, it didn't lead to action. Moses wasn't fooled by the pseudo confession either. And his response in verses 29 and 35 is, Yeah, I'll go pray to God, but I know what you're doing. Cutting through the BS, I know exactly what you're doing, Pharaoh this parenthetical statement of there was these plants growing over here, the flax and the barley, but these plants hadn't yet cropped up yet, he knows that what Moses is doing is he has a back door open they can still kind of exit through. He has a backup plan. He's holding back, he's withholding from God, he's keeping a little bit and saying that he's surrendering. And Moses sees through it, he sees the backup crops that he has. We can ask the question, was this calculated? Was it outright deception? I don't really think it was. I don't think it was crocodile tears that Pharaoh was giving. I think he probably legitimately felt this weight of, I have sinned, you're in the right. But I don't think he started out that way. I think self-deception begins with some fakeness, but we end up believing our own lies. My favorite author, Um, from my favorite book, The Brothers Karamazov, outside scripture, is Fyodor Dostoevsky. He has this quote that goes this way, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point where he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others, and having no respect, he ceases to love. Pharaoh was a hard, merciless man to Israel because his deceit had grown within him a hard heart towards himself and then others. So when someone looks so much like they have tenderness and confession and conviction, how do we know? How do we know what's deceit and what's humility? Um, If you guys listen along, I think we probably have it up on the screens, at least part of the verse in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, through 7, verses 9 and 10, we see this picture of godly grief put up against worldly grief. Pharaoh is exhibiting worldly grief, but not a real godly grief. Paul in that section says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, one very, very clear thing we see is that the kind of confession that leads to obedience, the kind of confession that has a humility that leads to obedience, is godly grief. Humility leads to obedience, but deceit cannot. There can be no obedience. If you're living, if we are living in outright disobedience in any area of our life, there's absolutely no chance that we are walking in humility. They can't coexist. When you're mainly grieved, when we are mainly grieved because of the consequences when we get caught, the way that our sinfulness makes us feel inside, how we've hurt someone else, or how we're grieved by our own shame... That's worldly grief, and it's at the root, prideful and deceitful. Godly grief is about God. Worldly grief keeps us centered in thinking on ourselves. It leads to a place, godly grief does, where we recognize, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. It's almost like we're blind to our consequences for a second. We're blind to the shame. We're just completely aware of the fact that we have sinned against a God who is only loved us and only been good to us. Taproot, even as God's people were tempted towards the same heart of Pharaoh's deceit, Israel continued in this pattern that they saw exhibited in Pharaoh, at least in part, where when God was calling them to go into the promised land and they were at the edge, after walking in the wilderness for these 40 years, God says, go into the land, and they say, <clears throat> nope. There's an army there that will crush us. We won't obey. God says, "Well, here's a sneak peek at what's going to happen because you chose not to obey." And then all of a sudden, you see, we have sinned. We repent in sackcloth and ashes. Moses, let God know we'll do it. We're, we're good now. And God says, and this is my paraphrase, but it's in uh, Numbers 14 or 13 and 14. You can read it for yourself. It's a great snapshot into that kind of deceit. God says, "No." Your heart is not for me. Your heart is trying to get away from the consequences of your own disobedience. We all do that. And before I go too far into Egypt and Pharaoh and hypothetical, um, by definition, we, we don't know when we deceive ourselves. We're self-deceived, like you don't know your own blind spots. So I asked Sarah, um, I think yesterday as I was preparing, what are some good illustrations of deceit? And she very kindly, in a loving way, said, well, pretty often lately you've been staying up till 1 or 2 a.m., watching more and more episodes of that Netflix show you really want to finish. And I I tell you, I'm going to go be a grown-up and go to bed at a decent time, and you say, one more episode, (laughs) and you're up there till 1. That's a good illustration of deceit. And, and it is, and it might, seem, it might seem harmless compared to the killing of all these people. It may seem harmless compared to seven years of lying and deceit in a marriage that leads to abandonment of your family, but it's the exact same heart. It's, it's a heart that starts a slippery slope that you don't know you're on, and sometimes, unless there's humility that corrects that course, you will hit all the way down to the bottom. My life, in some of my earliest memories, started with recognizing that same heart. I think I was about the, the age of my son, eight or nine, when I was really into coin collecting, and I knew you know, my mom had collected coins when she was a kid, so she showed me some of her collection. I knew where it was in the top drawer next to the underwear drawer in the room, and I waited till she was asleep. And I snuck in there, and man, my heart was thumping. I snuck in I took out that quarter as a nickel. It was the oldest nickel she had, and I kept it. I kept it somewhere in my room. I don't remember when, but there was a point where that, that conviction set in deeper and deeper to the point where I literally, it sounds cliche, but I took a shovel one day while they were out, and I dug a hole in the front yard, and I buried it. I literally buried it. So I don't even, I, it's like even the shame of saying, like, it was buried for almost two years. I didn't become a Christian until I was 15. I don't even know if that has much to do with it, but that shame persisted. Like I can, The reason why, I don't have a great memory, but the reason why that persisted, that memory persists, is because there was two years of just feeling this deep weight of conviction where all of a sudden, I could have like robbed a billion banks for all I cared. Like it, it was the thing that I knew that the Spirit was pointing out in my life until I literally went, tried to find where it was, dug it up, and gave it back to my mom in tears as like a 10 or 11-year-old. But this kind of thing is something that I still do, as I illustrate, and that we do all the time in small ways. I mentioned how you can be self-deceived if you're not practicing humility, and I think Moses makes that point too. So next we look at the plague of the locusts, the eighth plague, where he is clear and tells Pharaoh that you are refusing humility, that God says that through Pharaoh. So reading chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 really quick. And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your own son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your country. And he goes on to describe what that's going to look like. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? He's saying this has been the problem all along. All these plagues, the problem isn't just that Pharaoh's been stubborn, it's the other side of that. Pharaoh has not agreed to humble himself, he has refused. And Moses takes this bold move. Can you imagine, that's a lot of boldness to go before the most powerful ruler of your day and say, you're a real arrogant dude. How long are you gonna fight against the God of the universe? A God that Pharaoh doesn't believe in, although he paid lip service to. Moses had the leadership maturity to both see something and say something. He wasn't afraid to speak to the heart. He said that you do not fear God, that's the root. He didn't get, up, try, get caught up in trying to rationalize to a man who has already self-deceived himself. There's not much good in rationalizing when a person is at that point. It's pointless. Answers and explanations don't change someone's heart. But he called out the deceit and the double-mindedness in the face of this potential probable retaliation. And then we see that in verse 7 when it picks up. We see Pharaoh squirms under pressure and does indeed retaliate. And it's, it's starting. Moses has started to get under his skin by not letting up. And he continues to move towards Pharaoh's heart. In this portrait of deceit that we have in Pharaoh, there's four tactics that I see him employ. And they're not going to be on the screen, so write them down if you, if you want to. But they're pretty common to, I think, all of us when we're cornered into a place where our sin, our double-mindedness is seen outright. Pharaoh says, I've sinned, God's God, and then he's like, nope, nope, I'm God. And Pharaoh's like, I saw that. I saw what you did. And there's three things that, that, that are tactics that Pharaoh employs. He gets personal with Moses. As his servant said, you are a snare to me. And he believes that, internalizes it. It's a class, classic backed into a corner tactic. We're forced to either take humbly the message that's being given to us or shoot the messenger or find some way to discredit. Secondly, he complains that he's gone through enough already. Egypt's already ruined. This is the feel sorry for me tactic, where you try to guilt the person that's confronting us because they're being too harsh. And God doesn't mince words. He says, I am harsh at this point, point," and rightfully so. Thirdly, he attacks outright Moses' motives. He says to Moses, you have some evil purpose in mind borrowing God's morality to use against God. That's bold. That's hard-hearted. And it's often the first move that we do to dismiss someone that's pointing out something that is ugly in our hearts. We don't often vocalize it, but in our minds, I'm not going to hear that from you. I know what kind of person you are. We use God's own morality against him for our own lusts and then fourthly the last thing i see in his response is he tries to compromise he's been doing this all along let the men go out and serve the lord but keep the women and children here you don't need them i'll keep them as collateral because i don't trust your god we've seen him every time he starts squirming more and more as the heat turns up he gives and compromises a little bit more but he still holds back you want to go Fine, just do it in Egypt. Don't need to go out to your own wilderness land. You want to go? Fine, but leave the animals here. Moses says, no, we've got to sacrifice those animals. You want to go? Fine, but leave the women and children here. He's always trying to compromise and get around humility and obedience, the two paths that are continually before Pharaoh this whole way through, and he keeps refusing humility and choosing deceit. The locusts are sent... We see that in verses 12 through 20. And in this locust plague, we have to realize how devastating locusts are. We don't have a lot of locusts in Burien. But in that day, it wasn't uncommon to have locusts plague your land and literally devour every bit of plant that's there, of crop that's there. And through the Bible, we see this, the locust as almost a shorthand for judgment. God talks about in future judgment that there will be locusts sent. And it's, there's a symbolism there that is used as well, that the locusts are often like a symbol or a way of like communicating there's an army of people that locusts will attack. We see that in Joel. We see it in the book of Amos. And they also become um, something that is paired often with darkness. We see in some of the prophetic books that there's locusts that are so thick that it blots out the sun and leads to a severe darkness. And so all these things are little foreshadows to what's happening. We all see where this is going. Pharaoh's path is obvious to us. We even see this in the way that he says he sent the locusts with an east wind into the Red Sea. This picture of the army of Egypt will also be sent into that sea, that these locusts plague will lead to a plague of darkness. It will be the plague before the plague before the last plague. And it's getting darker and darker. And really, they eat up your life. This is, the, this is the picture of like the things that you think you can preserve, the goodness that you think you can preserve without God, the life that you think you can still have, that's not the life that Jesus gives abundantly. The locusts eat up. That's not what Satan tells you when he first lures you in with sin. But it's what you're left with. Nothing. Like sin, the locusts spread. Pharaoh asks in verse 16, he quickly summoned Moses. This is the first time he's quick. <laughs> and he doesn't often summon them at all. Sometimes they have to ambush him by the water, like Javon talked about. But there's an urgency here. But the difference is the urgency is not an urgency to repent. It's an urgency for God to relent. And we often mistake them when we're seeing someone who is urgent to get out under the weight of the consequences of disobedience. We see that his moral compass isn't shattered yet, but it's severely, severely broken. Often what seems like someone hitting rock bottom isn't really a confession of guilt, but an attempt at a plea bargain with God. So we need to address something that should be a question that pops up in our heads. It should be an obvious question that comes out, but I want to make sure we address that putting them putting yourselves into the shoes of pharaoh he's seven plagues in now this is the ninth plague and he still continues seeing the exact same outcome isn't that the definition of insanity thinking that you can continue to do the same thing over and over with a different outcome but he is insane he has gotten to this point where he's continuing in his rebellion he's continuing to see and simply to see is dumb <laughs> I was trying to think of a more like pastory kind of like one for that. I just like, it's just dumb. And it's not dumb in the, I would never do that kind of dumb. It's like, man, we are so dumb sometimes. We're so dumb to think that we can continue in rebellion in our hearts and that it won't affect our minds. That we'll continue thinking rationally about life and that we can come to a place where we can be like, yeah, that's, that those consequences are pretty severe. I think I'll stop sinning now. It's not just a cognitive thing. Satan is like a kid with poison. Pastor Will brought this analogy to me. And the father's telling him to give it up. And he keeps on drinking it with this look. Can't stop me. And God is just saying, I don't want you to kill yourself. It's foolish. It's childish. Romans 1, 21 and 22 speaks of this. Foolishness that affects our minds as well. It says, For although they, meaning everyone, all humanity, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Pharaoh has deceived himself to the point where his sin isn't staying safely tucked in his heart, but it has trickled into his thinking and it has distorted it, and he has deceived himself. If you're waiting for the consequences to get severe enough for you to turn towards obedience to God, or for a friend or a loved one to, to snap out of it, to make the right choice, No, mind change does not start in the mind. It starts in the heart. Start there and assume that if we, if me or you, if any of us are in willful sin, we aren't thinking straight, and we will believe that two plus two equals five if it suits our purposes. It's terrifying. He continues with words of confession, but not a life of action that's repentance. There's no obedience. There's two paths, humility or deceit. He is so far down this chosen path of deceit, over and over that he has internalized his own lie. He has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then we move to the last plague. This darkness, it says a darkness to be felt, is how it's phrased in the text. Have you ever felt a darkness like this? I I don't know, like the total solar eclipse. I was just surprised at how light it was. I was expecting it to be a lot more dark when the whole sun was covered. But even then, it was still eerie. There was a chill that set in. It seemed like the world turned to like sunglasses, like I was wearing sunglasses everywhere I looked, and there was this chill that set in. And just, this doesn't feel like, like this is right. This is the middle of the day. Jim and Janice traveled down to, to Oregon and explained what it was like to be under the, the, the path, the, the total eclipse path. <clears throat> and that was only partial dark for a small window of time, but they said it was eerie. It was, it was amazing how much it altered just the way you feel. But I think they felt it another way too. For them, darkness also meant something else, something that was about not just the way they physically felt, but a the way they psychologically and emotionally felt, because it was tied to their belief system. The highest god in the Egyptian deity system in the polytheism was Ra, the sun god, And as God gets ready to cap off these plagues with this final tenth plague that brings Israel to deliverance, he ends it with this crushing of Ra, the God of the sun. He counters him and he crushes him. It's probably worse than the physical absence of light, although that would be crushing too. None of us have experienced that. But this idea of like your biggest God, the biggest kind of stabilizing thing in your life, your philosophy, we all have worldviews that we don't realize how much we lean on them. And when that's pulled out from under our feet, it's that I'm not your real dad kind of moment. It's disorienting, it's crushing, and it's spiritual blindness that they're left with. We persist in our self-deception, disobedience, we become more and more blind there's a point that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's given over to his blindness that section from Romans 1 continues on and God says after their foolish hearts were darkened it says God gave them over to a debased mind How do we answer the plaguing question that us theologians like to kind of hide behind when it comes to our own deceit? We like to say, well, God seemed like he kind of interfered with Pharaoh's free will, right? How do we answer that question? I don't think we fully can because we're not God. We're not above him looking down on him to explain him. But I think we can answer it partially and recognizing that when God seems to violate Pharaoh's will and harden him, I think the answer is that God did not move contrary to Pharaoh's will, and do this forcing himself on Pharaoh, he moved in accordance and along with Pharaoh's will. He gave Pharaoh exactly what he'd been longing and fighting and striving for, a life without obedience in and under the presence of God. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that some of us may have heard, but it's in my favorite book of his called The Great Divorce, and it reads this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, to them it is opened. Tapper, be careful what you desire. Be careful what you seek. When we take the first steps towards humility, light floods in. You don't have to work your way back. The door opens. The fog begins to lift. The scales begin to fall from blind eyes. And I want to close with looking at this concept of light and darkness because it's one that God begins the Bible with and he also ends it with. In the end, we see Jesus is the light of the world, literally. There is no need for a sun in the renewed heavens and earth because Jesus is there. His brightness is enough. And in the beginning, in Genesis 1, Javon mentioned that the Old and New Testament is like an overhead projector slides, that when you overlay them, you see them both at once and you see them fit together in this beautiful way. We see that in this theme of light and darkness, beginning in Genesis 1, the very first (coughs) words of our Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. A <clears throat> little uh, interesting thing about the Hebrew there, when it says God said, let there be That phrase, let there be, is the same word he uses a lot of other places for command. God commanded light. And if you look in the first chapters of Genesis, God says, let there be this, let there be that, let there be fish, let there be expanse in the sky. He says, let there be ten times. There's ten words that God uses to create all of creation. And in these ten plagues, these ten commands of God to humble yourself, we see a decreation ending in the inverse, this darkness, God is deconstructing the Egyptians, and he deconstructs us. He brings us completely to the end of ourselves where we see our darkness. The darkness wasn't new for them spiritually, but they were blind to it. They were deceived by it. They thought they were walking in light, but it was darkness. They had no contrast. These ten words of decreation, I think, correspond to the Ten Commandments, these ten words of building a new kingdom, a new humanity in the Ten Commandments. And these are all sneak peeks. These are all light between the cracks. Moses' face, when he comes and gets those Ten Commandments, is glowing so brightly he has to veil himself. The light is peeking in, and they all point towards Jesus. Where in Matthew 4.16... It says, the people dwelling in darkness, all of Israel, all the Jews, all the Gentiles, all humanity dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus in another gospel is called the light of the world that darkness couldn't take out, couldn't overcome, it couldn't comprehend. This one word, Jesus, the word of God, is the definitive creation that God has intended The cross, as Jesus lives his life and is led up to it, this is the gospel, guys. The cross is where we see humanity do our best to try to snuff out the light because it exposes us. It's uncomfortable, exposed too much in our hearts. That's why Jesus wasn't received all that kindly. He spoke words that were true and piercing. And as Jesus was up on that cross, Right before his death, in the story we see that darkness fell on the land. A pitch black darkness, a show. Jesus took on the weight of all this plague, all this punishment from God. Jesus took on and bore the ten plagues in his own body for us so that we could be spared, delivered through our proverbial or symbolic red sea ourselves. And he rose in the light of the morning three days later, much like they were three days without darkness in Egypt. Jesus, after three days, rose in the light of the morning from the tomb in this lens of light and darkness. Light had conquered darkness. Whereas in Romans 1, it says, our foolish hearts are darkened. Bringing this home, we are blind and we are walking in darkness without Jesus. But we come to him the way that Pharaoh would not, when we come to him and say, in obedience, in humility, I'm deceiving myself. I've been hard towards God. I've had a darkness in my heart. I've had dark thoughts. I've done dark things. I've had dark motives. You don't want to have done the right things. When we get there, as the book of Hebrews later says, when we know we've been enticed by the deceitfulness of sin, God says, today, don't harden your heart. Today is the day. Don't harden your hearts. Then God comes in. The lights flick on. He says, I've been waiting for that. I've been waiting for you to say, thy will be done. I have so much goodness for you. Once you step out of the rain of hail, once you step out of the locust swarm and come to me, come to the land of Goshen with the people of God. Sweet daughter, sweet son, I have had such a good and beautiful will for you. You're plaguing yourself. I've wanted to give this to you, but you've you've come feigning open hands, but you're kind of holding something there. It's never been fully open. You've been clutching onto something else. God has done this in my life when I gave myself to him. I had to come in this place of humility, knowing I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd grown up knowing the right things. I'd grown up confessing words like Pharaoh. But in my heart, I had held so much back. And when God convicted me of that, he broke into my heart in such a way that as the Apostle Paul says it, the same God who said, let there be light, back in Genesis, through the light of Jesus Christ has shone in our hearts. So if you're not a believer... I invite you to that. I invite you for the first time to recognize and face the deceit and the darkness that we've chosen, that path that we've been on. And I invite you to that second path of humility that brings about a life of obedience and joy and fullness and flourishing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, You are the light of the world. We have been a people dwelling in great darkness, and you came in. In the midst of that, because you love us, your heart is not for us to be plagued by your judgment. Your heart is not that any of us should perish, but that we shall come and have eternal life in the light. So Lord, as you, as you convict us of different ways that we are, are half-hearted or double-minded, that we have a heart of deceit like Pharaoh that, that feigns a very Christian life, that, that can attend a small group, that can serve, but yet in the deep corners, we live a double-minded life like Nicholas Francisco, where in the end it comes out and it destroys the very things we love. The very things that we were wanting, we find we've been tricked all along. You are the fulfillment of that, Lord. So give us hearts that are humble to receive good things because you're a good father and to give you our rebellion, our deceit, and our sin and to believe you paid for that. So God, as we spend time in communion, taking your body and bread in these symbolic through your body and your blood and these symbolic bread and wine. um, Remind us, you've paid such a price to have us. You've taken this punishment so that we can walk in life and in light. We thank you for that this morning. Amen.